You are listening to episode 13 of Captain's Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the Solar Clipper. Written and read by Nathan Lowell. Chapter 35. Well over Orbital, 2372, February 28th. Rendezvous with the tug and docking was almost anticlimactic after the build-up and run-in. We clamped on just before 1800, and I asked the crew to stay aboard until we got a solid handle on how long we'd be docked. I knew they'd be disappointed, so I asked Mr. Wyatt to do a little special arranging on the dinner menu while we were still a day out. After docking, I went to the cabin and cleared their requisite paperwork to expedite unloading and reloading. That involved some relatively light lifting to clear local customs. But since DST had a long-standing relationship in Welliver, that amounted to dropping them a line to let them know we were in port. Something after 1810, I joined them on the mess deck. I have to give them all a great deal of credit. There wasn't anywhere near the level of gray cloud that I would have expected. Miss Thomas, who had the duty anyway, was holding court on her corner of the table with great zeal, and Mr. Wyatt looked like he was trying to think of what he should do next. We were so used to seeing him bustling about in the galley that to see him at the table with a cup in front of him and nothing else going on was a bit odd. Even Mr. Ricks and Mr. Hill looked to be in good spirits. When I stepped onto the mess deck, the general hubbub died down and all heads turned my way. Thank you all. I'll declare liberty as soon as we've had a chance to see where we stand in terms of resupply. This is going to be as short a stay as we can make it because the deadline on the priority is already very close and I want to try to make sure everybody gets the same chance ashore. It's not going to work out that way, probably, but I'd like to be as fair as I can. Miss Thomas smiled at me. What's for dinner, Skipper? Mr. Wyatt won't tell us. Right on cue, I heard the visitor call buzzer from the main lock. I think that's dinner now. We called ahead for takeout. I went out to the lock where Mr. Schubert was just in the process of cracking it open. Outside, two delivery people in white uniforms were standing by with a grav pallet of goodies. I followed Mr. Schubert out, and the shorter of the two turned to me. Ishmael, you made captain since we met last. Hello, Jimmy. I did indeed, and it's great to see you. We shook hands warmly. I hadn't seen him in months, of course, but Jimmy Chin was one of the first people I met on Welliver. He ran three different restaurants on the orbital, and the man knew food. Thank you for doing this for us. Oh, no, thank you, Ishmael. You tip good and you like to eat. Two things any restaurateur appreciates. He was grinning broadly. Besides, this looks like a good racket. I may put this up as a regular service. He made a shoeing motion with his hands, chasing us back into the ship. Now, the stock is cold, the food is hot, and I bet you have hungry crew who want to celebrate. Go, go. Mr. Schubert led the strange parade into the ship, and Jimmy followed with his assistant sliding the grav pallet behind him. I followed them all in and keyed the lock closed. Mr. Schubert had stopped at the duty station, and Jimmy was looking around. First time on a ship, Jimmy. Ah, no, but first time on a freighter. This is very... Words failed him. Drab, I supplied. No, utilitarian, something like that, Ishmael. Very useful. I nodded to Mr. Schubert. I think if you latch the lock for now, Mr. Schubert, we'll be able to hear if anybody rings the bell. Show Mr. Chin to the mess deck, if you would. The parade continued onto the mess deck and was greeted with curious looks. Jimmy knew his business, though. His assistant slid the pallet up to the end of the table and popped the latch. Several bottles of wine and beer made appearance, and everybody except the duty watch got a glass of beverage. I shrugged an apology to Ms. Thomas and Mr. Schubert. She toasted me with her mug. He just shrugged it off. The food should have made up for any disparity in privilege, though, as container after container appeared from the pallet, piping hot and redolent with spices and scents from far away. 
Jimmy Chin made the best Chinese food in the Western Annex as far as I was concerned. Purists can argue over whether this or that cuisine is authentic, but I judge by flavor, and I always ate at Jimmy Chin's chop shop whenever I made it to Welliver. In a matter of heartbeats, Jimmy and his assistant had laid the table and parted the counter with tray after tray of goodness. With a flourish, they stood back from setting up, and the crew applauded. Jimmy took a bow while his assistant closed up the now-empty crate and pulled the grav pallet back toward the lock. I walked them back to the brow to let them off the ship. Thanks, Jimmy. I owe you one. Oh, yes, you do, Captain Wong. He grinned and held out the tab. I took it at a sizable tip, thumbed it, and passed it back. You know I mean more than the credits, you old reprobate. I appreciate this. He shrugged and grinned. Well, you know we do take out in the station all the time, but this is the first time even for Jimmy Chin. He watched the lock open up with some interest. But I think this won't be the last. Well, I better get back in there before the chicken wings are gone. I shook his hand again. Thanks again, Jimmy. He turned away from the dock, and I slapped the latch to button up. The food was a hit, and the subsequent party was riotous. Luckily, we were surrounded by vacuum, or the neighbors might have complained. It took us a couple of stands to chew through a large portion of Jimmy's fare, and I could see Mr. Wyatt making mental notes as he contributed his share to the task of demolishing the mountain of food. Even Ms. Thomas sat back with a satisfied smile and a few morsels left on her plate when it was over. As the feast ran down to the odd chuckle and desultory plate-chasing, conversations turned to the ship. Any word from the orbital cargo master, Mr. Wyatt? They'll be up in the morning to pull a can, Skipper. They set around 0930 if that's convenient. The new shipment's being brought over from the marshalling yard. It should be here by afternoon. Where are we on tankage, Chief? She gave a little girl sideways nod. We're down some, but not as much as normal, Captain. Flow meters say we should top out in another 25 stands or so. We'll be ready to fly in two days. Mr. Paul, is that enough time to get us to jet before the deadline? With a day to spare, Skipper. I looked around the table. They all looked full and satisfied, eager even. It's a short stay, but are you game to fly on? They took a moment to look around at each other, assessing themselves and their peers. It didn't take long before they were all looking back at me. Assent was written on each face. I did a little math in my head, figured it was probably wrong, but made the decision anyway. All right then, ladies and gentlemen, with that poor bit of planning and meager forethought, I'm going to declare liberty for the top of the stand. I glanced at the chronometer and realized it was already almost 2100. If you'd make the announcement, Miss Thomas? She grinned and leaned forward to look down the length of the table. Liberty, 2100. Then she sat back with a grin. With the general ambient level of mirth present, that set everybody off into a new gale of giggles. Nobody appeared in any hurry to wander off. There was still wine and beer and the temporary permission to consume it. I had my limit, so I crossed to the urns to grab a fresh cup of coffee. I still had work of my own to do before the day was over. It felt good to stand and shake down the feast a bit, so I took what was becoming a favored position and leaned my rump against the counter and looked over at the screen. It still showed the open cargo list, and it was on live feed from the orbital. Our shipment was, of course, no longer in evidence, but the remaining cargoes were still updating. I pondered the jump through the deep dark and remembered that I wanted to talk to Miss Thomas about it. So, Miss Thomas, have you ever pulled a double jump on the tractor before? The general level of conversation fell off, as it was wont to do when one of us raised general questions, and several heads turned to face Miss Thomas. She was still toying with the last of a spring roll and took a few heartbeats to notice that people were looking at her. She gave a little laugh and pawed down the front of her ship suit. What, did I spill? No, Miss Thomas, I asked if you'd ever done a double jump with a tractor before. 
She continued to brush her jumpsuit and looked around at the now nearly silent table. Her head came up, and as she looked around, she saw me standing behind her. Oh, sorry, Skipper, you were talking to me. What was that again? She turned around on the bench to face me. Have you ever jumped a tractor into the dark before, Miss Thomas? Oh, certainly, Captain. Dozens of times as third on the Hector. Any special techniques, Miss Thomas? Just ride the inertial wave, Skipper. The sails give us a lot of velocity, and when we drop them to slip through the hole, most of it goes with us. Unless we hit something pretty solid coming out the other side, 45,000 metric tons moving at even a bit carries a huge inertial load. She shrugged. Just ride it till we get the fix. Use the thrusters to adjust delta V so we go through the next jump in good order, and we're back in sunlight, ready to pop the sails open again. Mr. Paul nodded from across the table. Doesn't sound too tough, but that's a lot of V to delta. How much thruster will we need? She turned her head to look at him. How much thruster? He nodded. Yes, that's got to be a long burn to get the course shifted. She shrugged. It could take a while if you're doing much in the way of line change, but a double is really just drawing a line from here to there, jumping in the middle, making sure we know where we are, and then continuing on. If it's more than a few points in any direction, that would be pretty surprising. I could see the crew was absorbing the information. I knew it made me feel better to have it confirmed by somebody who'd done it. Good to know, Miss Thomas. She turned to face me again. Skipper? Good to know, Miss Thomas. Thanks. She smiled and nodded. My pleasure, Captain. I focused on Mr. Wyatt next. Any idea what's so all-fired important in those cans, Mr. Wyatt? You're not going to believe this. The reason for the priority, and the reason it's so high, is that the shipper is under contract to a big glassworks over in Jet. The contract is one of those that specifies quantity and delivery schedules, and it carries a very high penalty for failure to deliver either quantity or schedule. If these cans don't make it, then the quarry operators here stand to lose a lot of money. Glassworks? We're going to carry three cans of sand? He shook his head. No, Skipper. Only one can is sand. One is a particularly fine clay they use for making rocket nozzle linings. He paused, waiting for the straight line. Mr. Hill supplied it. What's in the third can, Mr. Wyatt? His timing was impeccable. Kitty litter. The ambient mirth in the room ignited again and burned for several ticks. When the humor had subsided a bit, I pressed him on it. Seriously? Kitty litter, Mr. Wyatt? He nodded, still smiling broadly. Strictly speaking, fuller's earth, a kind of crystallized clay that's a general absorbent. It's used a lot in industry. Apparently they have a good source here, and it's part of the contract. He shrugged. Quarry ran into some mechanical trouble and got behind in their production. This shipment should have left a month ago. Another few days, and they're out of luck. If they're willing to pay this kind of premium, I'm betting they'd be out of business as well. Those penalty clauses can be nasty. Whatever the reason, Skipper, we stand to make a lot of money on this load of dirt. As long as they stay liquid long enough to pay the freight, Mr. Wyatt shrugged expressively. I don't care if it's 15 metric kilotons of used kitty litter. It'll be back there in a can and won't bother us one bit. Mr. Ricks piped up. I would not want to meet that cat. Mr. Wyatt looked over his shoulder. That cat? Mr. Ricks grinned. Yeah, the one that needs 15 metric kilotons of litter. The ambient mirth had reached critical levels once more, and ignited anew. I left them there and took my coffee to the cabin. I still had ship's business to attend to, and then the difficult duty of telling my wife I'd be late to dinner. By about six weeks. I sighed and paused at the top of the ladder. 
I could hear Miss Thomas clearly over the general hubbub, even from officers' country, and over the general thrumming of the ship. That woman had some pipes. Chapter 36, Wellover Orbital, 2372, March 2nd. In the end, we got caught in Wellover an extra day, not for tankage, but for food. Mr. Wyatt was almost beside himself over the delay. It was one of those can't-be-helped situations. We placed our replenishment order while we were still a few days out, and it was on schedule for delivery the morning of the 1st. Unfortunately, the carrier delivering to the ship got snarled up with a cargo handler, and both units were slagged in the resulting fire. Luckily, nobody was hurt, and the losses were covered by insurance, except for the time it cost us in getting a new replenishment order filled and moved in from the marshalling yard. The good news in the whole mix-up was that the co-op got their first feel for flea market trading. I'd set Mr. Schubert off on the morning of the 29th to secure a booth, and among the three of them they worked out a schedule for coverage that included the afternoons. There's better deals in the afternoons. Sar? Mr. Paul looked up at me. Oh, nothing, Mr. Paul, just something we used to say about going to the flea market. He went back to his astrogation screens. If we don't spend too much time in the deep dark, we'll be okay on this deadline, Skipper. Thank you, Mr. Paul. If you'd pass the word, I'd like to call the navigation detail at 1400. Aye, aye, Captain. He skinned up out of the seat and headed down to the galley. Most of the crew would be there. With the installation of the long table, the mess deck had become a kind of crew lounge. Mr. Wyatt's gentle humor and ready supply of samples encouraged people to hang out and keep him company while he puttered about. I crossed the bridge to look out at the cans. The orbital's cargo people had been most expeditious in swapping out the cargoes. I'd sent a thank-you note to the orbital's cargo master. His crews had done yeoman service in getting us set up to fly as soon as possible, and I appreciated the extra effort. If they ribbed us about the cargo of platinum-plated kitty litter, I was happy to laugh all the way to the bank. I glanced up at the chrono. It was getting ready to click over to 11.30, and I could hear Miss Thomas holding forth on the mess deck. I sighed. I was on the bridge, and she was down inside the mess deck. Granted, I was at the top of the ladder, and there was an almost direct sound path down to the main deck, but I could still hear her voice echoing clearly up through the ship. Other voices were indistinct mumbles, but I could hear every word Miss Thomas spoke. She reminded me of a colleague my mother had back at the University of Neris. He was a big, bluff professor of mathematics. He claimed he developed his booming voice to reach the sleeping students in the back of his classroom. His colleagues claimed he learned to whisper in a steel mill. I snorted, thinking about my old life. I hardly ever thought about growing up anymore. The dusty streets and languid heat of Neris. The small apartment I'd shared with my mother. I took another sip of cold coffee and tried to focus on the coming voyage, but my mind kept straying back to that math professor. What the heck was his name? It was one of those irritating things that happens sometimes. I knew his name, it was in there somewhere, and I just couldn't dredge it up. And I couldn't stop thinking about it. I remembered all kinds of things about him where he lived, his wife's name. There was even a joke going about that he made himself deaf from talking. I closed my eyes and rested my forehead against the cold armor glass. Of course. It was a matter of a few moments to scamper down to the mess deck. Everybody but Mr. Hill and the chief were gathered around the table, engaged in making lunches. It looked like a good setup, and Mr. Wyatt was supervising. Mr. Wyatt, may I steal Ms. Thomas from your production line for a moment? I have a task that I need her to do for me before we get underway. She looked up as I entered the room and looked startled that I'd singled her out. Mr. Wyatt shrugged. Of course, Captain. 
I nodded Miss Thomas out to the passage, and she followed me with a curious frown. I need you to do something for me, Miss Thomas. I kept my voice low and my head turned to the side. For good measure, I rubbed the side of my face closest to her. I'm sorry, Captain, what did you say? I turned to face her. I need you to do something for me, Miss Thomas. Of course, Skipper, how can I help? Gwen, I want you to report to Orbital Medical right now. Go down and ask for hearing examination. What? Her voice, already quite loud, took on a note of alarm. It was enough that the general hubbub in the galley quieted. I nodded in the direction of the lock. This way, Miss Thomas, if you please. I led her out to the lock, and with a nod to Mr. Hill, cracked the lock and led her out to the frigid docks beyond. It was loud enough and busy enough out there that we had a bit of privacy. I didn't want to embarrass her in front of the crew, but she needed help. What's this about, Captain? By that point, she'd had enough time to process and was becoming angry. I looked down on her. Our height differences never seemed to be that great until I stood next to her. Gwen, I think you have a hearing loss. I want you to go and get it checked out. That's all. If I'm wrong, then no harm, no foul, and I apologize for interfering. But if I'm right, then this is a matter regarding the safety of the crew, to say nothing of your health and well-being. But, Captain, I've been through this before. There is nothing wrong with my hearing. I smiled. Prove it, Miss Thomas. Bring me back the audiogram. She started to screw up her face in that truculent frown I'd seen the first day aboard. Please, Gwen? But we're getting underway this afternoon, Captain. I can spare you for the few ticks it'll take. Go now, you'll be back in time for mess. I put my face down close to hers. Please, Gwen, I need to know for the safety of the ship. She looked like she might argue one last time, but she subsided. Okay, Ishmael, you've been a square dealer so far. Take a bet? Name your stakes. Loser buys the winner a beer when we get to Jet. Agreed. Conditions? I'll take the audiogram. If it's clean, you buy. If I have a loss, I'll buy. You have a bet, Ms. Thomas. I spit in my palm and held it out. She spit in hers and took the grip. After a quick squeeze, she headed off toward the lift and medical, and I headed back into the ship and out of the cold. I went back to the mess deck and helped pack up the finished boxes to clear away for mess at noon. Mr. Wyatt had planned a hearty lunch mess, and the smell from the ovens was delightful. I thought it was a spicy pork dish, but I'd stopped looking at the menus, trusting in Mr. Wyatt to surprise me with good food. With a couple of notable exceptions, he lived up to that trust. I was more than willing to accept the exceptions as part of the price of training a first-class chef. The chronometer clicked over to 1,200, and Mr. Wyatt opened the mess line. Are we expecting Miss Thomas back for lunch, Captain? I was expecting her to be back by now, Mr. Wyatt, yes. I'm not sure what the delay is. We didn't stand on much ceremony, but continued through the serving. I did happen to notice that Mr. Wyatt set aside a plate with several choice cuts on it. We all got seated, and I had several curious glances from the assembled crew, and the odd look at the empty place across from me. Conversation lagged until Mr. Paul offered the first salvo. So, what do you think is really in the can, Skipper? My initial hunch is that it's probably kitty litter sand and clay, Mr. Paul. Why? Sar, nobody pays that much to ship kitty litter. He looked like it was so obvious. I turned to our cargo expert. Mr. Wyatt, your thoughts? He took a minute to finish the bite in his mouth before speaking. Interesting question, Captain. I'll admit I wondered that myself. Any idea on the actual commercial value of the cargo, Mr. Wyatt? He shrugged. Not really, Skipper. I don't follow the futures market in kitty litter. Mr. Hill surprised us. Actually, Sars, 
The valuable can in the three is the sand, then the clay, and then the fuller's earth. Fascinating, Mr. Hill. Do you have an approximate value on the worth of the three cans? It's hard to say, Captain, because it's part of a long-term contractual agreement between Wellover Mining and Extraction here and Jet Ceramic Components. The details of that contract are not in public record. Going rates on the open market for the three components would place the value of the shipment at something like three times what they're paying in priority shipping. Mr. Paul whistled appreciatively. That's a lot of money for freight. Mr. Ricks shrugged and tossed a few tidbits of his own onto the table. Contracts are funny things, sir. These bigger players out here toss them around like confetti, and everybody's trying to do in everybody else while they're trying to make it look like they're being cooperative. That struck a chord with me. How so, Mr. Ricks? Well, take this WME and JCC contract, Skipper. Nobody knows for sure, but rumor is the two got into a kind of brinkmanship game over it. They couldn't really play too fast and loose in the primary conditions of cost and schedule, but they knifed each other pretty badly in the penalty clauses. Mr. Paul's eyes glittered. How badly, Mr. Ricks, do you know? He shook his head. Not in detail, but I'm guessing this priority they're paying is a drop in the bucket. Apparently, JCC was late in payment sometime last stanier. The late fees were reported to be record-breaking in the local press here. I knew it. Mr. Paul looked jubilant. They're all pirates. Mr. Wyatt turned to Mr. Ricks. That's an awful lot of information for a private contract, Mr. Ricks. Mr. Ricks shrugged. I think it's as much about claiming the win as getting the money. WME couldn't help crowing. Mr. Wyatt smiled. I wonder if the JCC did the same on the other side, but with a slightly different twist. Mr. Schubert grinned. I can see the headline, JCC, Victim of Corporate Greed. We shared a chuckle, and I saw the chief stiffen and look over my shoulder. What? Miss Thomas's voice came from behind me, but stopped suddenly before resuming at a more normal volume. What's so funny? Conversation, laughter, all of it stopped and all heads turned to where Miss Thomas was standing in the entrance to the mess deck. I smiled at her. We're just laughing over corporate greed, Miss Thomas, and wondering how we can take better advantage of it. She crossed to the galley and started looking over the serving area. Mr. Wyatt rose. I saved you a plate, Gwen. I wasn't sure how long you'd be, and I wanted to protect some small portion from these scavengers. He was grinning and looking at us all in mock fierceness. She beamed at him. Thank she stopped and thought for a moment before resuming at a more normal tone. Thank you, Avery. That was thoughtful. He used an oven mitt to pull the warm plate from the oven and slip it onto Miss Thomas's place. I turned to the chief. Any problems with getting underway in a few stands, chief? Oh, no, captain. We're topped off and ready to sail off into the night. She smiled her little girl smile. Miss Thomas tucked into her lunch with a will, and I turned to Mr. Hill. If you'd take a moment to hang out the sign, Mr. Hill... We'll make Orbital happy by locking down now. He scraped the last bit of dinner from his plate and stood. Aye, aye, Captain, securing the ship for scheduled pullout at 1400. He took his empties and slotted them into the cleaner before heading back to his watch. Mr. Wyatt eyed the clock and mumbled. We'd probably better serve dessert if we're going to be done before 1300. Miss Thomas turned to him, leaning in to see around the chief who sat between them. I'm the late one here, Avery. Don't wait on me. Please, serve dessert. It was a little unnerving to hear her speak at a near-normal tone, and she seemed to sense it. She sighed once and looked around the table. She seemed to be trying to make up her mind about something. She looked at me, and that decided her. I owe you a beer, Skipper. Her voice was that rough, burled alto that I associated with heavy worlders. 
clear of the volume artifacts. It had a richness to it that was completely at odds with the sharp voice we'd all come to associate with her. I'll collect with pleasure when we get to Jet, Miss Thomas. She turned to the table at large and took a deep breath. The captain sent me to medical. I had a hearing check. She turned her head a little to show a small button of flesh-colored material in her ear. The test itself was very fast. It took a little longer for them to install my new ears. Chief Gearhart was closest to her and leaned in to look. Oh, that's cute, she grinned happily. And you can hear better? Miss Thomas nodded. Yes, Chief, I can hear better, and I shouldn't have to shout so much. The Chief clapped her hands happily. That's wonderful. She offered a quick, seated hug. I'm so pleased. Miss Thomas looked a little taken aback by the hug, but as everyone around the table offered congratulations and good wishes, she soon relaxed and smiled as she finished off her lunch, and Mr. Wyatt portioned out pie and ice cream. Chapter 37 Well of Her System, 2372, March 20th. We were only 18 days out of Welliver when we went to navigation stations for our jump into the deep dark. The ship was doing well and the crew was functioning very smoothly. Miss Thomas was adjusting to her new levels of sensory input and she actually seemed younger. It was something about her eyes. She didn't seem as haunted. The chief was relaxing a little as well. Her mask didn't exactly come off, but she seemed more at ease. The little girl was still there, but maybe she was growing up a bit. Mr. Wyatt had obtained some new spices, and we were treated to some wonderful curries on the way out. Even the bad boys seemed pretty happy. Their first try at doing a flea market booth had yielded some good, if not great, returns. And somebody had taken my advice on finding new trade goods from the flea market. The guest locker still had a lot of things that I thought might not sell well at the flea, but they'd also picked up some bolts of fabric and a few pieces of flat artwork from a local artist. Mr. Paul, however, still insisted that something else must be in the containers. His speculation went from toxic waste to dead bodies to the inevitable pirate horde. I found him with an ear pressed up against the aft bulkhead as we were preparing the ship to jump. What are you doing, Mr. Paul? Listening, Skipper. I see. And what are you listening to? Nothing at the moment, Skipper. We are surrounded by vacuum, you know, Mr. Paul. Well, yes, Skipper, but any vibrations in those cans would be transmitted to the hull. I considered that for a moment. Actually, I don't think they would, Mr. Paul. He looked surprised. Why not, Skipper? The pads at the edges of the cans are built to damp out vibrations. It keeps the ship's vibrations from being transmitted into the cans and stirring any volatiles that might be in the cargo. He looked crestfallen. Then I wouldn't be able to hear if there was, like, a fuse actor back there supplying power. I shrugged. You might, Mr. Paul, but... It would have to be back there, for starters, and it would have to be vibrating more than hours for you to pick it out of the home. Excellent points, Captain. Thank you. You're welcome, Mr. Paul. Do you think we might get the course plots laid for the jump? Oh, it's all done, Skipper. I did it earlier and then came down here to listen. Timing is everything. Timing, Mr. Paul. Well, yes, sir. The pirates won't want to act too soon. They'll wait until we jump into the deep dark before they strike, and we'll just be another statistic on the lost ship's roll. He looked positively gleeful at the prospect. Are there any precautions you think we should take, Mr. Paul? Well, just keep an eye open for the murthering scum, Skipper. Murthering scum, Mr. Paul? Yes, it means like cold-blooded killers, but meaner, Captain. I'm familiar with the term, Mr. Paul. I was just surprised you used it. I've been working on my vocabulary, Captain. He looked down shyly. 
Never know when you might hear a word you don't understand and feel like a ninny-cum-pooper. Yes, I can see where that might be embarrassing. Well done, Mr. Paul. Now, if we could secure the pirate patrol and adjourn to the bridge, I've a mind to see the deep dark this afternoon. Capital idea, Captain. He raised a hand dramatically. Hi, Tortuga bound. He scampered off up the ladders, and I could hear his eager footfalls all the way up to the bridge. It was a bit distressing. I kept remembering the comment that Mr. Hill had made on her way into Welliver about the crew being a reflection of the captain. The thought gave me a few moments' pause. I slipped into the galley for a hot cuppa before following Mr. Paul to the bridge. The rest of the crew was waiting when I got there, and I nodded to Miss Thomas to call us officially to stations. The swap-over was seamless, since Miss Thomas and Mr. Schubert had the watch already. I took my seat as her now mellifluous tones echoed through the ship. Miss Thomas was enjoying the effect that her heavy world's growly voice had had on the male of the species, and I suspected she was practicing it. Do we have enough way on the boat, Miss Thomas? I should think so, Skipper. She took a few moments to look at some data. It looks good to me. When we furl the sails, we'll go ballistic at something like 2,000 meters per second. We really only need a meter per second to jump through the hole. Mr. Paul added a macabre thought. We'd have to hit something pretty big awfully hard to lose that much momentum, Captain. If we did, I suspect our vectors after that would be in the hands of a higher power. Well, now that you two have done such a good job of calming my fears, perhaps we might actually go somewhere else. Did you have any place in mind, Skipper? Miss Thomas practically purred. What do you think, Mr. Paul? Hi, Tortuga, Skipper. We're plotted and locked. Miss Thomas was watching her boards. Ship reports ready to jump, Skipper. I glanced over and saw her board lighted green. Ready about, Mr. Paul. Heartily. He mashed a key, and we jumped. Most times when the ship jumps, the view out the forward screen changes. Typically, a bright pinpoint of light appears where there was darkness before, and the background spatter of light shifts position, sometimes radically. When you jump into the deep dark, there's no central star, just more of the same scattershot pinpoints as when you left. If you weren't watching, it would be easy to miss. Did we go anywhere, Ms. Thomas? We did indeed, Skipper. We are out of range of any beacons and somewhere in the limbo between the lanes. Do you know where we are, Mr. Paul? Hi, Tortuga, Skipper. I'll have a more precise answer shortly. His fingers were flying, and the screen in front of him exploded in data. I tried to hide the uneasiness in my coffee cup. Ms. Thomas broke into my pretended reverie. I've got a contact on long range, Skipper. Ship, Miss Thomas? She was staring at a plot on her screen. Looks more like maybe a collection of ships, Captain. Mr. Paul looked up from his screen, for all the world like some kind of ground squirrel sticking his head out of a hole. Hi, Tortuga. He went back down the hole. Ms. Thomas leaned over to look around the end of her console in Mr. Paul's direction. She cast me a look and gave her head a little shake before refocusing her attention on the plot. After a few ticks of fiddling, she grunted. Hmm. I really hate to say this, Captain, but it looks like some place that might be called High Tortuga. I got out of the chair and went to look over her shoulder. It looked like a collection of ships, cans, and assorted other metal arranged in a haphazard pattern. As we watched, one small blip split out from the mass and began accelerating away. Any idea what that is, Miss Thomas? Odin's outpost, Captain. Looks like it's grown a bit since I saw it last. I leaned in to look at the display. At our range, there wasn't a lot of resolution, but it was enough to see what looked a lot like a freight marshalling yard when viewed from a 100,000 kilometers out. 
What, pray tell, is an Odin's outpost, Miss Thomas? It's kind of a way station, Skipper. It's not really much of anything. Officially, it's not there. It's been so long since I jumped out here, I'd practically forgotten it. We skimmed by it on some of the doubles we did back on the Hector. We got close enough to give it a good scan on the short range, but I've never been in eyeball distance. Looks like a collection of cans and some small ships, Miss Thomas. I think at the heart of it there's a ship, Skipper. The story on the Hector was that this guy, Odin, jumped in and his Burleson drives went out on him. He couldn't jump back. He flew around out here for a while and the next ship through rendered assistance, so he was able to get out eventually. When it was over, he took it in his head to come back out here and set up this way station. It started as a shipload of food, fuel, and spare parts. She nodded at the screen. It's more now. He just sits out here in the deep dark, Miss Thomas? It appears so, Skipper, but he's really on the crossroads between the Breakall to Dre run and the Welliver to Jet. Those four systems are almost on the same plane, so if you've jumped clean, you'll go through this relatively small volume of space no matter which direction or which pair you're jumping to. Handy. She nodded. Yes, sir, that it is. He's been out here something like 30 Staniers. Nobody's quite sure how he's making a go of it, but apparently enough ships come through that need spare parts or forgot the toothpaste to make it worth his while. Black market, Miss Thomas? Who knows, Skipper? With plenty of time, the right incentives, and a twisted mind, anything is possible. Mr. Paul's voice came over the top of the console. Location fix verified. I know where we are, Captain. I straightened from the screen and looked over to where he was still pattering on the keys. Do you have a course correction, Mr. Paul? I do indeed, Skipper. Programming thrusters now. He slammed a few more keys. Estimated total elapsed burn time. He leaned in to look at his screen. Twenty-two stands, Captain. Did you say twenty-two stands, Mr. Paul? His fingers rested on moving on the keys. He turned to look at me. Yes, Skipper. Twenty-two stands. He looked apologetic. Comment, Miss Thomas. She shrugged. A little on the long side, but not out of bounds from what I remember from the Hector. Seems to me it was pretty normal for us to jump in one day and out the next. I turned back to where Mr. Paul was waiting. Initiate burn sequences, Mr. Paul. Without turning his head, one finger twitched and a key clicked. Initiate burn sequences? Aye, Skipper. Does this change our ETA and jet significantly, Mr. Paul? I'll have to run the numbers, Captain, but I was planning on 12, not 22. A lot will depend on where we jump into jet and the condition of the winds. Thank you, Mr. Paul. Ms. Thomas, if you'd secure from navigation stations and resume normal watch. Securing navigation stations and resuming normal watch, aye, aye, Captain. I eyed the chronometer. It had just gone over 1,100. I had less than a stand before I took over the watch again myself. When Ms. Thomas had finished the announcement, I went to the cabin intending to work on the reports, but spent half a stand just gazing out into the deep dark ahead and wondering if I'd made a horrible mistake. Thanks for listening to Captain Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the solar clipper. Music is the mason's apron and is used with permission of the artist J.F. Archer. Find this and other works by J.F. Archer at www.archive.org. This has been a presentation from Dorandus, offered under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 U.S. License. For more information on the golden age, visit www.solarclipper.com.